With lucky landslots, you can get lucky just about anywhere. Dearly beloved, we are gathered here today to... Has anyone seen the bride and groom? Sorry, sorry, we're here. We were getting lucky in the limo and we lost track of time. No, Lucky Land Casino, with cash prizes that add up quicker than a guest registry. In that case, I pronounce you lucky. Play for free at LuckyLandSlots.com. Daily bonuses are waiting. No purchase necessary. Void were prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Blog Talk Radio. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A Teenager. Learning the Lingo. GOAT. G-O-A-T. Acronym. Stands for greatest of all time. As in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the goat. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt US Kids, and the Ad Council. Good morning, good morning, and welcome to the second half of Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys. I'm your host, Joy Keys. I want to thank you so much for tuning in. You can follow me on Twitter at Joy Keys. Also check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. You can also email me, Saturdays with Joy Keys at hotmail.com. Well, just got off the phone with Delvon Lamar from Delvon Lamar Organ Trio. I've been giving away copies of his latest album, I Told You So, so you want to follow on social media. Uh, but right now, I am speaking with Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Jericho Brown. His absolutely amazing, amazing third book of poetry will blow your mind. I will be giving away some copies of his book as well. Good morning, Jericho. Uh, hey, good morning. Thanks for giving away copies. That, mean, that means you bought copies. I like that. <laughs> yes. you got to support the artist, you know. I mean, I was just telling Delvon that, you know, it's difficult and general for artists. And this time period, COVID, is, you know, I'm sure a strain on everybody. Uh, but let's ask you, how, how have you been handling COVID? Is it good for I'm you a, because you're a writer? It might be good, though. No. I mean, at first, well, isolation is sometimes hard to come by, and sometimes we want it, right? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and yet, uh, no matter how much we need isolation to get our work done, we also have a need for socialization so so you know it's up and down sometimes i'm happy not to have uh, obligations that i have to appear where i have to appear and then sometimes it gets a little um difficult uh less so now since i and uh, many of my friends have been vaccinated but i think uh before sometimes it was getting really difficult sort of the only other person i'm i'm seeing is is me in the mirror so that's that's not so easy even if you are Mm -hmm. a poet and yeah, when you're definitely. writing, you want to be able to write because you're living. I want to live a full and whole life where I have experiences, and that includes um, hanging out, making love, getting my heart broken. Uh, if you don't have those experiences, you don't get to have experiences about which to write. So, um, so it's not as easy as I thought it would be. I was sort of uh, grateful for it all at first when I got called off tour and uh, I was busy. I was doing something like three cities a week when I got called off tour in um wow. in, in March of 2019. So yeah, it's it's been up and down as it has for I think everyone. Yeah, definitely. I think for me, I thought um, well, I actually thought I definitely wasn't going to like it. I I like to be 
around people and, you know, hey, what's up, how you doing? You know, even just a small, you know, and then you get, like, suspicious of people, you know, like, did they touch this? Where have they been? And it's not yeah, like yeah. you think, mm-hmm. like, they're dirty or something, but it's just the whole thing of the COVID, like, everything you touch, wiping down your groceries, you know. Um, I, I know people who got it, and then they they had a, a baby, um, a young child under two, and they were really, really freaked out because of that. And um, they quarantined, and, you know, they were okay, but it definitely took us through a range of emotions. Um, and, and now coming out, people are just really – um, happy. I know many people are just really happy about it, and you know, being able to see their families um, is also a big bonus. Um, I haven't seen my mom since 2019. Oh so, my goodness! Wow. Yeah. Where's your mother? She she lives in D.C. and and I'm in Philly, and mm-hmm. um, you know, she, you know, she's older, so you know, you can't travel. I mean, you're, you know, mm-hmm. it's not suggested to. But anyway, back to you. Um, back to you being a poet, why a poet? How come, you know, you're not a lawyer, you know, a doctor, a swim teacher, a microbiologist? What's with the poetry? Where did you... Yeah, I wonder, I ask myself those questions all the time. Um, (laughs) uh, Under under the, uh, under the idea that if I had chosen something else, maybe my life would be easier. But uh, I love what I do. I love it more than anything. And I always loved it when I was a kid. There were always poems in church. I grew up in the black church. You could see little kids reciting the 23rd Psalm, but you also see mm-hmm. them reciting uh, Mother to Son or uh, The Negro Speaks of Rivers by Langston Hughes um, or Still I Rise or Phenomenal Woman by Maya Angelou or Ego Trippin' by uh, Nikki Giovanni. Um, and I spent a lot of time in the library as, kids. as a kid. My mom would take us to the library because uh, she was an improvisational genius and she understood that childcare was too expensive for her. So <laughs> she, was, uh, she was really smart, you know. So, and, and I fell in love with poems because they were short because I was a little kid. I was five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten years old, and I was excited about reading the entire page and then reading another page and reading another page. And part of that excitement had to do with the fact that each of the pages only took up maybe um, – but maybe there was only one fourth of text on each yes. page. You know yes. what I mean? Yes. So, mm-hmm. so um, I fell in love with poems because they were brief, and I uh, I still love them because of that brevity. Because you read a poem and then you can still walk around with a lot of it in your head, and you're thinking about it and figuring it out. It's harder to do with pages and pages of of fiction or or any other kind of prose. Uh, so that's one of the that's I think that's why also. I love music, and I like the fact of music in poetry. You know, when you hear someone read a poem, it's not just that you're hearing information. You're feeling music. You feel the, the, the music the of, the, of the language. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so that's, um, that's why poetry, I think. Um, and I think it didn't hurt that I, I had some talent at it. Like, I was, I was okay. You know, um, I wouldn't be any good if I hadn't learned craft. But if you can start with some amount of talent, then that's helpful to you, you know, like singing. Uh, If you can't sing at all, maybe you won't start singing. But if you can sing a little, then you might end up being a singer, you know. That's something I wanted to ask you because you're a teacher. And I wanted to ask you, you know, what should young poets be reading when they first start out? Everything. Um, The truth is uh, what I used to do and what I think is a really good idea is um, I used to go to the Barnes and Noble and start at A, and I was okay with the fact that I would get to C or D 
and I would be bored to pieces. Do you know what I mean, Joy? Mm -hmm. Uh, People Mm -hmm. think they don't like poetry because they don't like a poem, but we don't feel that way about music. There are plenty of, there are way more songs than we, than we're, that we're not interested in than there are songs that we like. Uh, If you look at all of music, the number of songs we like is very few actually, right? So when I was uh, first starting out, I would go to Barnes & Noble and I would pull a book off the shelf and I would read the first couple of lines and I would be bored to pieces and I would put the book back and go to the next book. Uh, You could do that same kind of work with anthologies, which gives you, uh, anthologies gives you a wide breadth of uh, various writers. Uh, So I would pick up an anthology and I would look at some of the writers in that anthology. And if I was interested in what one writer was doing, that meant I had a lucky, a lucky and a good day. Uh, getting through to the end of the poem was a big deal for me at the time. Um, reading is a, like a, a muscle, and you have to train it. You have to exercise it. At first, you don't feel like doing it, just like any other muscle, but the more you do it, the better you get at it. Uh, and you just figure out over time what turns you on and what doesn't. I agree with you. You know, because of the show, I read a lot. And then people are always like, well, did you check this out? I was like, look, I ain't got time for that right now. I got to do this because I got an interview with so-and-so and such and such. But, you know, I'm going to get to that. And so I have a whole list of books I want to read and then books that I feel like I have to read. But it definitely um, has changed my um, aesthetic in reading all, all these different types of books. And um, people come into my house and they're like, damn, all these books, did you really read them? I was like, yeah, pretty much, you know. Um, but it, um, it makes you, it, it's, it's like puts you in a whole different space by reading all these different things and it brings up other ideas and it can and, and, and fuel your creativity. If you only read one thing, it's kind of like a flat note, you know, but if you read multiple things, you can, um, it, it can encourage a lot of creativity. Did you have some mentors that aided you along the way with your poetry? Yeah, that list is too long. I mean, for one thing, I had all the books of poems that I was reading by those who are no longer with us, and I felt like they were mentoring me, uh, particularly mm-hmm. in the work of SXM Hill, Langston Hughes, James Baldwin, uh, County Cullen, Claude McKay. Uh, I was reading their work and feeling as if they were speaking to me from the dead. So in a way, they were my mentors. Uh, but the living people, some of the living people, you know, Claudia Rankin was my teacher, Margotti was my teacher. Uh, in New Orleans, I had the wonderful mentors, people like Terrence Hayes and, and Kalamu Yasalam and who else? Um, oh, my teachers at the, the MFA program at UNO, uh, Kay Murphy and John Gary. Uh, my teacher at Dillard University, I went to a black school, uh, Dillard University, uh, Mona Lisa Saloy was my teacher there. and She was a wonderful mentor to me. So it's actually, the list is too long because I kept putting myself in positions where I could be mentored. Um, I was always taking a workshop here in a class there, so I was always learning something, and I still am uh, trying to learn something. Sometimes I, even now I'll sort of log on. There are a lot of things going on on Zoom, a lot of readings, and I'll sort of log on incognito and just pay attention because <laughs> I want to. I still have a lot to learn about writing poems, you know. Yes, I'm sure everybody. I always tell my daughter, you never stop learning. You know, somebody no, makes no. an egg one way, and 10 years later you find out they were, somebody else did it a different way. You know, how you open the door and, um, you know, how you fix your shoes and all these things. There's people all over the globe. They all do it differently. So you never stop learning. Never be – don't close yourself off. Anybody I tell her that closes themselves off to learning and, you know, is like this egomaniac, 
they're not. They don't know anything because really knowing something means you're always know. You're always learning. You know that's how I feel about it. You know, um, I wanted I wanted to ask. So you are a teacher, and what kind of form do you draw your students on first? Poetry form. Um, I don't really drill them. I mean, I don't like to think about drilling. <laughs> I mean, you know, what I try to do, yeah, what I try to do is I try to share things with them. I mean, I invented a form called the duplex, and I, mm-hmm. I, I was teach it not because, that yeah, I teach it not because I invented it, because it's a, but because it's a good way to sort of look at several forms at once. The duplex is at once a huzzle, a sonnet, and a blues poem. And uh, I sort of, what I'm really trying to show my students is that all forms require a certain amount of juxtaposition, that you have to take two things that you don't think of as going together and slam them together in a poem. And if you do that, there's an emotional uh, resonance and an emotional reaction that a reader will have. So um, I wouldn't say that I drill them on the form, on any form, although I think it's important that they know what the forms are so that they can choose whether or not they're interested, and then they can go and drill themselves. So what I'm doing is I'm showing them sonnets, I'm showing them blues poems, I'm showing them pantoons, I'm showing them villanelles, I'm showing them all kinds of forms, everything I can think of uh, throughout the semester, and they get interested really on their own. Uh, They Mm -hmm. say to me later after class, like, oh, I'm interested in that poem you showed us. And I say, oh, you should try to write one. Here's how I would go about it. So um, I've tried to create a world where they can see everything yes. and then they can choose. Now, in the, the tradition, how did you decide on what form you were going to use? <sighs> well, it comes poem by poem, honestly. Um, sometimes a poem would end up being a sonnet, but mostly because I felt the poem telling me that. You sort of have to know what the forms are. Sometimes you find yourself repeating a line. You see yourself repeating a line, you might think, oh, this is a pantoum, or oh, this could be a villanelle, and then you might want to push the poem in that direction. But I don't try to push until I see what the poem is sort of doing as it emanates from me. That sounds crazy because it sounds as if the poem is a, a being unto itself. And I, in a way it is because part of what I'm trying to do when I write my poems is tap into my own subconscious mind. And so I'm sort of dealing with language because I like the sound of it, although I might not be making any sense. I can go up, go back, and, and clean up a poem for the sake of sense later. Uh, in the meantime, when I'm working on a first draft, I'm just trying to write to hear what I have to say. And I'm, as I'm writing, I'm finding out what I have to say. And then that leads me to formal choices once I've already done that. So often form comes through more in a stage of revision. I wouldn't, although I think other people do and it works for them, I don't think I would sit down and say, and it's weird because, you know, the tradition's a book full of sonnets, but I don't think I would sit down and say, and now I'm going to write a sonnet. Uh, what usually happens is I'll, I'll notice a poem is 14 lines or 15 lines or 13 lines, and I say, hey, maybe you should be a sonnet. Do you know what I mean? Mm, mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Well, you have a lot of stuff in your book to chew on. Like you said, you read all these books and you can walk around and think about different ideas. Well, in the tradition, you're talking about police brutality, you're talking about rape, mass shootings, violence. Do you think that poets, other artists should be activists? And if so, why? Well, it's not that I think they are. They are. Whether I think it or not, we're all Mm -hmm. activists. We're all 
whether we like it or not or whether we know it or not, we are either trying to make change or supporting the status quo with our work. Uh, any way you look at it, that's a decision. Uh, if you choose to do something um, in your work that supports the, the status quo, then that's what it does. Uh, but here's what I think about poetry. And maybe this is what I think about all of art. Um, I think the best of it, the best of our work, uh, will always be pushing against the status quo, will be pushing toward progression, will be pushing toward something new, something better than even the poet. Um, mm. We see that in the work of Walt Whitman, for instance. You know, when he's, what we know about Whitman is that he wasn't really interested in slaves being free. But his poems, on the other hand, seem to be pushing toward slaves being free. Do you see what I mean? So yes. I think when poems are really great and really good poems, they ask us to question what we've already been thinking. They ask mm. us to see anew uh, the emotions and the parts of our lives that we have, we thought we knew what they looked like, and now uh, the poem makes us look at them differently. And so even if you're writing a love poem, then you're writing a poem that turns out to be a political act. Even if you're writing a poem about the natural world, um, about your favorite tree in your, back, in your backyard, then you're writing a poem that turns out to be a political act, particularly about that tree since we know they're all in danger. <laughs> well, Brie, talking about trees, you have a lot of flowers and gardening uh, in the book, you know, woven between these different topics. For me, it made me think about what land uh, does do, I'm, so I'm not perfect in English, <laughs> that African Americans own and why they don't own land. You know, and, and what does that mean for them? Do you have family members that own land, or do you just have people that have pots in their apartment? Yeah, well, I mean, you know, I think often something like that is regional. Uh, mm -hmm. I also think uh, black people generally, uh, there are exceptions, obviously, but generally uh, we got here <laughs> in the United States in one particular way. Do you know what yes. I mean? The bulk mm -hmm. of us got here in the United States in a way that, and the way we got here means that we don't have wealth laid up that's getting passed down generation after generation that would mean for the automatic ability to buy a house or to own land. Well, there's redlining, um, you know. I mean, there's redlining mm -hmm. that happens. Mm -hmm. Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I, um, when I think about uh, that particular ability, I think about my grandparents. Both my, um, on both sides of my family, my grandparents were sharecroppers, and they, uh, they didn't own land. Um, they had to work very hard um, to be able to do so. And I think for me, they've always been an inspiration, not about capitalism or owning something, but an inspiration about the power of hard work and discipline mm -hmm. and mm -hmm. how discipline can make possible um, certain things. Uh, but that still doesn't, uh, that having discipline doesn't make the evils go away. Um, no, still have, no. Mm -hmm. You know, they're still there, and they're still brought about by a nation that does not necessarily mean for us to, to thrive. And I said not necessarily, but honestly just not. <laughs> does, not does not mean for us, does not mean, I mean you know, it's, not, it's sort of built into the system. Um, you know, anytime there's, there's something like three-fifths compromises on our lives uh, in the history of our national documents, that lets you know it's built into the system that we do not thrive. So yeah. uh, whenever we thrive, 
we've done magic. <laughs> we've done something uh, impossible. So, yes. um, but land shows up in the book a lot for that very that that very reason because I'm thinking about as I said I'm thinking about the extinction of our natural world, but also thinking about the way people see us and how we see ourselves and what's possible for us. Uh, part of the reason why there are so many flowers in the poem is because uh, every black man that I ever uh, grew up around planted flowers, you know, in their yard, you know what mm-hmm. I mean? Um, mm-hmm. uh, and that's the kind of thing that I think uh, we have to remember sometimes about ourselves. Sometimes the world will tell us things about ourselves that are simply not true. And you need a poem to help you look around to see what's true, what's true about uh, the black people you're around and that you love, uh, as opposed to what um, any other media will tell you is true or what uh, some false history will tell you is true. Now, in the poems, you know, you have, uh, do you label yourself a queer poet, a black poet, a black queer poet? Um, Because, you know, in many places, being queer, you could be killed um, or, you know, definitely, you know, in the river somewhere. And and here in America, do you feel like it's become more accepting um, to to pronounce who you are and, and, and and people, like, just be okay with it? Well, of course it's becoming um, more accepting. I don't know how, how okay people are with it. Uh, but then again, it's not really my job to care. You know what mm. I mean? Like, mm-hmm. um, it's not my res- – I mean, it's not my responsibility uh, to manage other people's thoughts and feelings about my personhood. Do you follow mm-hmm. what I mean? I yeah, know well, just like being a black person. Think, yeah. yeah, yeah, it's just not – I mean, I don't really have t- – I mean, I'm doing a lot, so I don't have time. Um, I would love <laughs> to be able to, like, have class after class with people about um, queer folks, but I just really don't have time for that, you know? So, uh, I don't, and I don't, I also don't understand, to be quite honest with you, um, and maybe I don't understand because I'm queer. There's this fear um, about queerness that I won't be able to uh, fathom um, and haven't, I haven't ever been able to fathom, right? Um, ultimately, folks are, it seems to me, mad at queer people because somebody else told them to be. And so they just sort of keep it up. You know, they keep telling people yeah. to be mad at queer people. You know, um, so, well, I and I don't, you know. I want to have somebody to blame. It's just like anybody wants to have their foot on your neck as long as nobody has their foot on their neck. You know what I mean? So sometimes yeah, that's and, you the know, mindset. It's really interesting to me because, um Often with, ra- with various kinds of xenophobia and racism that somebody to blame can be traced to sort of a, um, an economic lie, right? Like, mm-hmm. oh, we don't have jobs because they yeah. came over and they took all and our took jobs, mm-hmm. right? So, mm-hmm. um, and that's, that ends up being a lie, right? Uh, we find, for instance, uh, when there was the Muslim ban during Trump's presidency, uh, many of the people that he was saying couldn't work in the United States anymore were people like neurosurgeons, right? And so then it, then it turned out there was nobody to operate on your brain. Hello, uh, hello, and exactly. And people who were complaining, or, or like you, the field in the farm, yeah, yeah. So then people who, yeah, people who are complaining, oh, they take our jobs. They're like, well, who's gonna? Are you a neurosurgeon? Um, and then also, are you, I mean, I, really, are you willing to clean my house? You know what I mean? Um, so those are, the, those are the kinds of things I think happen with that. But then I don't understand how, what that has to do with queer folks. Like, is it 
I don't think there's a fear that a bunch of queer folks are going to take your job. I think people, there's something in people that thinks that queer folks are going to um, corrupt them. their way of life. Right. Corrupt yeah. their way of life. Well, I think it's something. beyond corruption. I think it's like real life rape. Like, mm. And I think that has to do with how people think about themselves. So that, that again, turns out to be your business, right? Um, we know that men are really horrible with women. I mean, particularly with young women, um, often with underage women. And they so, get pregnant. Yep. Yeah, exactly, exactly. So um, the fear that people have of queer folk, it's really weird because they have a worse problem, it seems to me, from straight folk. Uh, so I don't really – all of <laughs> And all of the men, all of the my friends who are, um, you know, now grown men. When I my straight male friends, when I talk to them, uh, black men, um, when I talk to them about their earliest childhood, their earliest experiences with sex, often those experiences are childhood experiences that they were having with grown ass women. So I wouldn't really be afraid of queer people. I would be scared of uh, straight people. They seem like the nasty ones to me. But. <laughs> also is the issue of sensuality, sexuality, and this fluidness that people, they want things in boxes. They want it yeah. to be in this pretty little box. It has a ribbon on it, and this is who I am, and I only can do this. And I think what happens, my... But you my, can have that. Like, so there's something in yes. people that thinks the presence of the queer person is asking them to be queer, but I but, actually yes. don't want mm-hmm. you if you don't know how to do it already. <laughs> exactly, exactly. In the book, you do have love and you do have romance. Um, and what's the most romantic thing someone has done for you? you oh, that's it? a great question. Well, can I tell you this? This is not the most romantic thing someone's done for me. But can I tell you what's been wonderful in my life? Ever mm. since I won the Pulitzer, there has been reason for me to get flowers every two weeks. So it's what? been like a year. And, you know, it's been a year since I've won the Pulitzer. And at first, a bunch of flowers came because I won the Pulitzer. Like, people just really wanted to love on me, and it made me so happy. And I was mm-hmm. like, this is so much better than having a boyfriend. They never sent flowers. <laughs> <laughs> and then after that, like, I would do it because I had won the Pulitzer, I would be asked to do things, and then I would do those things. And people's response for me doing those performances or doing whatever I had done, they would send me flowers. So mm. I, for a long time, had a house full of flowers. And today, and it's been a year, and a year and a few days, actually, since I won the Pulitzer. And today is the first day that I can look up at my house, and there are new flowers. So if there are any listeners out there who want to send me flowers, hey, the house is empty now. It's time. <laughs> What's your favorite flower? Do you have a favorite flower? Oh, that's a really – I like begonias. Really, that's my favorite flower. But, you know, you have to have them outside. You can't really have them – I like those. And I like um, – I don't know if I have a favorite plant. I had some orchids a while ago, but then I started traveling again, and you cannot be on the road and trying to keep orchids at home. Oh, it's no. Yeah, that's not – yeah, they're very so, But they're beautiful. I love them. I love orchids, yeah. Now, when you first started writing, were you writing in a book, like with a pen or, or pencil or uh, when did you start writing on the computer? Do you use the iPad? How, how do you write your books out? Um, I usually write everywhere. So I'll write in a notebook. Well, not really a notebook, something more like a journal. I write mm-hmm. in the notes app of my iPhone, and I write on the computer. Often I'm, you know, I'll start, and I'll start in any one of those places depending on where I am. I don't have a location that I have to be in in order to write. Joy, I'll write, um, I'll write on buses, I'll write on trains, 
when I was writing the tradition, it was going very well. And because it was going so well, I was sometimes pulling over my car on the side of the road to, like, type things out in the notes app of my iPhone. So I'm mm. always writing all over the place, if that makes sense. Yeah. In your poem, the bullet points, you talk, if you're dealing with suicide and police brutality, and basically these guys like, look, if, if you see me in the police and they said I killed myself, I didn't. But, you know, right. there's a lot of uh, young black men, black women, who are dealing with the issue of suicide. Yes. Um, have you ever thought about suicide? And it's yeah, I mean, I think the poem, get over the hump? part of why I wrote that poem is I wanted to be honest about both of those things. Yes, this, uh, and, you know, part of the reason why we were told to accept Sandra Bland's um, death had to do with the fact that she had had ideations of suicide in the past that she had been public about. Um, so I wanted to make it clear uh, in that poem, no matter what my past has been, uh, as it relates to suicide or suicidal tendencies, no matter what my past has been, if mm. you find out that while I'm around a cop, <laughs> then that ain't it. <laughs> you know that what I'm saying? Yes, uh, and, you yes. know, the list of people who have uh, – uh, what's the word? I'll just say died. The list of people who have died, um, who have committed suicide supposedly while uh, in police custody is, is way too long. Um, and I don't, I don't like that. And I also believe that uh, people who are in need of mental health help, yes. uh, that they should be able to get that help uh, without uh, the specter of this, <laughs> of this lie sort of coming back at you if you die while in police custody. Uh, we should be able to investigate and understand what the hell happened is what I would Well, you know, in the African-American community, even, I mean, supposedly it's gotten better, but people don't want to go, and particularly men don't want to go. Men don't want to go to doctors. That's mm -hmm. one thing, you know, to get mm -hmm. things checked out. If you got a mm -hmm. bump, you got a scar, you got this. Mm -hmm. that, that's it. That's that. Now you're talking about a doctor for your brain. Uh, mm -hmm. that, that's a, that's another level, and they seem very resistant. Not all men. I'm making a generalized statement. How can we yeah. help men? How can we help men get to the doctor? You know what I mean? Well, we would have to support vulnerability in men, and we don't support vulnerability. One way to support vulnerability is to introduce people to the arts and to have them to get them give them an opportunity to have a try at the arts right because mm -hmm. when they do that they put themselves in positions where they have to experience vulnerability um but we generally just don't put men in a position where they have to uh, experience vulnerability and when vulnerability does come up for them you know we like to make fun of them for crying or for having uh, certain needs that any human being would have um, yes. so and and we have to think about the fact that vulnerability as it is in this nation right now, vulnerability is indeed unattractive to us. Intimacy seems to me unattractive to us. You know, um, when <laughs> you know, uh, I don't know if you've noticed this, Joy, but like almost all the lovemaking on television now looks like rape. It's always like throwing somebody around. <laughs> you know, oh, my God. Have you, ever seen, um, have you ever seen Game of Thrones? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I've seen it. I've the beginning of the, the, the first season. Okay, I, I, I had to almost turn it off. For me, I yeah. was like, "Yo, what? This yeah, is yeah, actually yeah. on TV? Oh my yeah. god! Like, do they know? Like, I'm a what the hell? So, yeah. um, it's not reality. I remember talking to my daughter about sex. I'm sure she's going to kill me for saying this, but I did talk to her about sex. She had a little book about it, and you know, she knows the mechanics. 
when she was growing up, I said, it's not about the mechanics. It's about the emotion. Yeah. It, it, the yeah, emotion yeah. is what gets you in the position to connect physically. You know what I mean? Yeah, yeah. Um, that's, what, that's what gets you there. That's, that's very smart, keeps you, yeah. keeps you there. It's, it's yeah. not about the mechanics. And I think in schools they just teach the mechanics. You got the penis, you got the vagina, you got this, da da da, da and da, da. You know what I'm saying? Yeah, yeah. Um, and then mm-hmm. they don't teach about queer sexuality. So what about that? What is the what is the queer child in the school? And they're like, but that's not attractive to me. Well, what do I do? You know what I'm saying? Yeah. How do I get to yeah. the point where I'm happy? You know what I'm saying? Mm-hmm. So um, there, there's a lot there. But let me ask you. You're from Louisiana. Do you eat crawfish? I love crawfish. I okay, love. how do you love your crawfish? What 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 seasonings do you put on there? How do you make it? You know, the best. Well, I don't make I don't make you don't want me to make anything. But I would oh, oh okay okay you no still there. <laughs> but, yeah, like you know, um, Tony Saturate stays in the house though because I, it's my favorite seasoning. Um, but other than that, you probably don't want to ask me no questions about cooking. Joy, I I let you down. I can eat really well though. <laughs> so who has made your best crawfish? I mean, what what do you like on it? What do you eat with it? Well, I mean, potatoes, of course. Okay, <laughs> okay of course. Um, most <laughs> of the crawfish that I've had in my life, I had at a crawfish boil. You know, they'll boil potatoes, they'll boil the crawfish, and you sort of sit there and pig out. So, yeah. Mm-hmm. Wow. Well, it's been such a pleasure speaking with you, Jericho, about your book. It's great talking to you, too. Thanks so much for calling me. And just I wish you so much success and more flowers in your life. Um, yeah, more you flowers. Know, uh, audience, you heard him, more flowers every two weeks. You need some every two weeks. Now, what happens, though, when you're on the road? Who's going to take care of the flowers? You got somebody to come in and, and water things? I mean. <laughs> well, <laughs> well, I'm not on the road yet, so we'll see. When the question, um, I'll, I'll be able to answer that question for you later. I'm not on the road yet. I'm still laying low. I don't think I'll be traveling until later in the summer or maybe even in the fall. But then we're going to pick back up and we're going to start doing readings again and, and teaching workshops away. So, yeah. What's the next? What's your next book about? Are you working on That's your next book? That's a great book? question. I wish you could tell me. I'm always working on a book, but I'm sort of at a stage so early that I wouldn't be able to say, oh, it's about X. Uh, mm. But I'm always trying to get some writing done. I mean, you ended with love, you know. Yeah, yeah. You ended with yeah. love there. Yeah. I mean, you could do something opposite, start with love and then end with, I mean, there's a lot of rage in there too, but I mean, you, you know yeah. what I'm saying? Like, you, you know, I well, don't you know. Well, you know, Joy, I'm a love poet and, and uh, above all, no matter what anybody says, if, if the tradition is anything, um, it's, a lo- it's a book of love poems mm. uh, and I, am, uh, I love love poems. And uh, when I die, if anybody says anything about me, I just hope they remember to say that I was a love poet. You know, that's mm-hmm. what I'm interested in, first and foremost. Wow. Thank you so much, Jericho. I hope you have a lovely weekend, and I hope more flowers come your way. Thank you, Joy. I'll talk to you later. Talk to you later. Okay, bye-bye. Bye. Thank you, everybody, for tuning in. Just got off the phone with Pulitzer Prize-winning poet Jericho Brown. His latest book, The Tradition, I'm going to be giving away some copies. You want to win this book. This book is going to take you through so many emotions. You're going to have to, like, put it down go get your coffee or tea, maybe watch a comedy and then come back. And then put it down again, go to work, do whatever, go visit family, and then right before you go to bed, you need some more. It's so rich. 
it's not super long, but it's so rich and varied in the book. So follow me at Joy Keys on Twitter. Check me out on Facebook, Saturday Mornings with Joy Keys, and on Instagram, Saturdays with Joy Keys. Also, you can email me, SaturdaysWithJoyKeys at Hotmail.com. I thank you again for supporting the show, and I hope you're having a wonderful weekend. Please stay safe, and um, hopefully maybe you're having fun because it's going to be getting a little warmer uh, in certain areas. All right, take it easy. Adopt U.S. Kids presents What to Expect When You're Expecting. A Teenager Learning the Lingo. GOAT, G-O-A-T, acronym, stands for greatest of all time, as in spaghetti sandwiches for dinner? They're my fave. Dad, you're the GOAT. You don't have to speak teen to be a perfect parent. Thousands of teens in foster care will love you just the same. Visit AdoptUSKids.org. Brought to you by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, Adopt U.S. Kids, and the Ad Council. It is Ryan here, and I have a question for you. What do you do when you win? Like, are you a fist pumper, a woohooer, a hand clapper, a high fiver? I kind of like the high five, but if you want to hone in on those winning moves, check out Chumba Casino. At chumbacasino.com, choose from hundreds of social casino style games for your chance to redeem serious cash prizes. There are new game releases weekly, plus free daily bonuses. So don't wait. Start having the most fun ever at chumbacasino.com. No purchase necessary. DTW, void, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.